Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedergold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. The debate on climate change has been dominated by calls for government intervention. Climate protests are often accompanied by socialist worker posters and anti-market rhetoric. It is now seemingly conventional wisdom that climate change is a crisis of capitalism. This is not just a matter of rhetoric. It is also reflected in the policy prescriptions. The Green New Deal in the United States calls for large-scale nationalisation in the name of the environment and has also been replicated in the European Union, which has support from both the European Commission and Parliament. Today's episode will focus on what socialists seek in tackling climate change and why their policies ultimately fail and examining cases where command economy orientated nations have led to a degradation of the environment. Today I am joined by Dr Christian Niemitz and Mark Pennington. Dr Niemitz is head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the author of Socialism, the failed idea that never dies. Mark Pennington is a professor of political economy and public policy at King's College London where he champions classical liberal and libertarian values. I'd like to start by discussing the philosophy of socialist environmentalists and why they believe the policies they advocate will lead to better conservation. Mark, would you like to start? Okay, thanks very much, Luke. Um, I think it's important to think about the way in which people talk about environmental values. Um, So there are people in the green movement, including socialists who emphasize what are sometimes called intrinsic environmental values. So this is the idea that there are certain environmental goods that cannot be traded off against other kinds of value, or they can only be traded off to a very limited extent. Now, if you hold this kind of notion of value, which in some ways is in tension with liberal notions of pluralism, the idea that there might be competing values or conflicting values, then it's not surprising that you would see the state or some form of state control as the mechanism through which to achieve your values. Because essentially what you're trying to do is impose what you consider to be the right set of values on people who are recalcitrant in the face of those values. So I think that's one reason why some socialists um, believe that um, it's only through state control that you can achieve environmental protection because the particular understanding of environmental protection they have implies that other values need to be controlled or even, you know, if you want to be dramatic about it, crushed in effect. And Christian? Yeah, there isn't really such a thing as a a socialist philosophy uh, of environmentalism or philosophy of socialist environmentalism uh, as far as i can see it's really just a series of assertion socialist environmentalists like to assert that uh, capitalism is ultimately 
incompatible with preserving the environment and tackling problems such as climate change because, so the argument goes, capitalism relies on perpetual growth and you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Now, these are just two assertions and both of them are wrong. Firstly, it isn't true that uh, capitalism requires perpetual growth. You could imagine a capitalist economy in which most people take the view that they have enough and they have no further material ambitions. And in such a society, you probably wouldn't get a lot of economic growth because uh, when offered, let's say, a pay rise, uh, people in such a society would then say, no, I'd rather take, I'd rather work shorter hours rather than have a pay rise. I'm, I'm happy with what I have. I don't want to become any richer. You could imagine a society where people are just content with the level that they have and uh, where for that reason, they would seek other goods and other things in life uh, other than material progress. They would prioritize other things and then you wouldn't get a lot of growth. And no economist in the world would then say, oh, no, this is terrible. Uh, we have to somehow promote materialistic values in this society so that GDP keeps rising. But if this is clearly the result of, uh, of, of voluntary uh, choices that people make, then nobody would have a problem with it. Uh, so there's that. But even if capitalism somehow did require perpetual growth, it isn't true either to say that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Uh, you very much can. Socialists uh, and, and environmentalists have this idea that economic growth just means uh, using more and more resources and doing more and more of what you already do doing more of the same stuff. But that is not at all what it means. It mostly just means making better use of the resources that you already have. And that's why more advanced economies uh, at some point start using fewer resources and are also less polluting. Uh, it is, of course, true if you compare a middle income country such as China or, or Turkey to a very poor country such as Afghanistan, then, of course, the middle income country will use a lot more resources and it will cause more pollution. But if you then compare a rich country like Britain to a middle-income country, then uh, you, you will see a very different relationship because CO2 emissions uh, and, and other kinds of emissions per capita at some point start to decline again, uh, or at least they, they, they remain stable. And it's clearest if you compare a rich country like Britain to a very rich country like Switzerland, there actually CO2 emissions per capita uh, and so on are actually lower. And uh, there they, they've reached a, a state where further economic growth doesn't mean using more and more resources, doing more and more of the same, that they are so much richer because they, they are more productive. And at some point, this is what, what economic growth means. So in that sense, you absolutely can have infinite growth on a finite planet. The air pollution is a really good example. So for example, total emissions in the USSR in 1988 equated to 79% of the US's total. However, since the Soviet Union's gross national product was 54% of the USA's, it meant the USSR generated 1.5% more, well, 1.5 times more pollution than the USA did per unit of GDP. And it does seem these kind of policies that uh, socialists advocate are almost a knee-jerk reaction to a policy issue uh, that unfortunately don't reflect into actual results that they aspire for. Take, for example, Maduro's Venezuela, a nation characterized by appalling environmental standards, unsafe air quality and wide scale deforestation. 
why is it the case that these kind of aspirations don't reflect into actual results that are intended? Why do those who advocate socialists, socialist antidotes, in fact, uh, to environmental challenges often fail to see the results they desire? Mark? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, I think there are a number of issues that you need to look at. The, the first is many socialists still today haven't learned about the problem of central planning. The fact that central planners don't have access to the information about the kind of trade-offs people make between different sorts of values. And because those planners don't have access to the information, they're going to make erroneous decisions. So we're going to have situations quite systematically of the sort that you described in the former Soviet Union, where large amounts of inputs, uh, which included uh, use of environmental assets, were deployed to produce goods that nobody valued because there wasn't a functioning market system indicating which goods people value, in what quantities they want them to be produced, and the kind of inputs that it's most appropriate to use in producing those goods. So that is a lesson, and I don't understand why this lesson hasn't been learned, but it clearly hasn't been learned, that central planning has got huge informational problems, and that those informational problems apply just as much when you're talking about managing environmental assets as they do when you're talking about managing assets in general. I think the second issue that many socialists um, who are also environmentalists failed to recognize is the way that many of the problems that do occur in market systems that economists describe as externality or collective action problems are actually built in um, to the very nature of socialist environmental policies themselves. So it's true that in some situations, market actors don't take into account the cost of the decisions that they make on third parties. So there are externalities and those externalities need to be dealt with if we're going to have good outcomes. And there are different ways in which you can try to do that. And perhaps we can talk about those a little bit later on. But I, the point I want to make at this stage is that the problem of externalities imposing costs on people against their will is part and parcel of what you will have in any kind of socialist regime which does not respect the institution of private property because if you have a situation where either technocratic planners or democratic majorities can just impose whatever they want then they have no incentive to take into account the costs that they are imposing on other actors so externalities will always be generated within socialist systems because either the planners or majorities of people that are sort of put together by, uh, by politicians will seek to impose costs on other agents. Um, so those two lessons, the planning problem, the informational problem, and the externality problem, the way that externalities apply within socialist regimes, I think are two issues that very few socialists uh, I've seen uh, take very seriously, and they should take them seriously because they're fundamental to explaining why those systems have got such a miserable environmental record as well as a miserable economic record. And what are your thoughts, Christian? Yeah, 
I mean, I agree with Mark on the uh, the informational problems within a centrally planned economy, of course, but notwithstanding that, nonetheless, it would have been possible in principle for the government of the Soviet Union to say, okay, these are the most polluting industries that we have, we'll shut them down or will fundamentally change the production process. That would, in principle, have been possible. You could have said, in the next five-year plan, um, we'll, we'll take out these following industries here. That would have been possible. You don't need a huge amount of knowledge for that. They, they did know which, uh, where most of the pollution occurred. Uh, so the question is, why didn't they do it? And of course, we don't know what they were saying behind closed doors. We, we uh, can't say for sure, but my guess would be that is simply because if they had done that, that would have led to a massive reduction in living standards and uh, that kind of trade-off between environmental conservation and economic prosperity, which exists in all economic systems, uh, whether capitalist or socialist or something else, uh, was particularly stark there because they had such unproductive economies to begin with and therefore it, it would have been harder for them to uh, prioritize environmental conservation harder for them than it would have been for an equivalent Western government. Uh, you, you are quite right, Luke, that uh, if we compare market economies to planned economies, the market economies uh, have a much better uh, environmental track record as well. A particularly good example here is if we compare East to West Germany just after reunification. Uh, that's a very good example because we have very good data here. There we can look at the concentration of various pollutants in the air, in the soil, in the water, and there's there's absolutely no ambiguity here in the data. It's it's absolutely crystal clear that on every environmental measure, West Germany was vastly superior to East Germany, uh, purely on environmental grounds, which is all the more impressive if we bear in mind how much more prosperous the West German economy was. And um, of course, a socialist would say, but that's because East Germany was a dictatorship and therefore they didn't take care of the environment, but that is not the reason. If there had been a large democratic uh, mass movement demanding environmental protection in, in East Germany, and if the regime had just said, no, we will ignore these people, then it would be fair to say, yes, it's the lack of democracy. In a more democratic system, they would have been more responsive. Uh, but that wasn't the case. East Germany had a small green movement that was not illegal. You could set up a green group in, in East Germany. Uh, you had to be careful what, what you said. They couldn't, they wouldn't have been allowed to say uh, things are much better in West Germany. Then they would have been cancelled. But in principle, uh, green activism existed on the other side of the Iron Curtain as well. It's just that that was a, a very small group and it never caught on. And, um, and green pressure groups uh, or democratic pressure wasn't the reason why Western systems uh, were better in terms of environmental conservation. Either West Germany at that time had a small Green Party, but they were not, they, they have something like 5% of the vote. You, you can't say it was because of them that the environmental record was, was better. Uh, it was simply that in, in the case of the West German economy, it was, there were a couple of low hanging fruits. You could pass a couple of, uh, basic laws that uh, to, to, to make sure that um, that uh, factories install filters and, and stuff like that to make sure that they don't 
dump toxic waste into the rivers and so forth. These are when you start from a fair from a from a low level of environmental protection and you introduce some of these measures. Uh, there you can have some fairly big improvements early on, uh, high marginal benefits and low marginal costs. That was possible in a prosperous economy. Uh, it couldn't have happened on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So I say that is simply the reason that the, the trade-off, the, 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 the bang for the buck uh, was a very different one. It was much easier in a prosperous economy to, uh, to bring about some environmental um, improvements. And also we shouldn't assume that just because a government is dictatorial, just because you have a dictatorship, we shouldn't assume that that means they're totally indifferent to public opinion. Uh, a government like the East German one was was concerned about public opinion. That's why they prioritized uh, consumer goods to a greater degree than, say, the Soviet Union did, because uh, East Germans had that comparison with West Germany, and so uh, they, they, they couldn't have done what Stalin did, uh, which is to put everything into capital goods, uh, that they had to uh, make sure that, uh, that, that people had at least some level of consumer goods. And that leads back to the question, if they had now decided to go green, with the the production technology and the level of productivity that they had that would have massively reduced living standards and would have made them extremely unpopular and that gap uh, that that existed already but in between uh, the east and the west in terms of, of consumption standards would have been even bigger and that's why they didn't do it if there had been a low-cost way even they would have done it so you talk a bit about um public opinion um but it does appear that under the centralization of power under a single authority, economic growth and production quotas are prioritized over other issues. So take, for example, the first five year plan, the agricultural collectivization led to millions starving in the 30s. Um, but this issue is also kind of almost reflected as well in environmental conservation. Would that almost be a fair assumption, Mark? Um, yes and no. I, I think you've got to be careful the way you're you're framing the issue here so it's certainly the case that in a centrally planned regime you can have an overemphasis on economic growth that the planners are not taking into account the fact that there are other values that people may have um, and there may be that may be an informational problem or it may be that it's just in the interest of the planners uh, to act in a certain way but you also need to recognize this is the flip of that that a centrally planned regime could also create too much emphasis on environmental protection relative to other objectives. So you could have too much economic development or you could have too much environmental conservation. The trick is to get the balance right. And that for that to happen, you need a system which generates information on people's preferences for environmental protection relative to other kinds of goods you need signaling mechanisms that communicate those values and you need incentives for people to respond to those signals so that we'll get the right kind of balance between these different sorts of goods produced. And historically, that is what um, socialist systems have been very ineffective at doing. But just leading on from um, what Christian was saying before, I think it's important to emphasize that democracy although it's important is not necessarily the key to getting this balance right either because if you have all decisions that are made democratically rather than on the basis of um, private property rights 
giving priority to, to the protection of property rights, then you are going to have a situation where it's always what the majority wants that dominates all of the decisions that are made. But we know in many walks of life that innovation, whether it's innovation in values, uh, innovation in production techniques, innovation in art or science, typically arises through minorities doing something that the rest of the population may think is crazy. You know, so the, many environmentalists in some cases take someone who I have to say I'm not a, a great fan of, um, Prince Charles. Um, when he started his organic farms, everybody was laughing at him. Okay, um, most people thought that at the time intensive agriculture was just the way you had to do things. But precisely because he has property rights, he doesn't have to do what the majority is saying. He's able to experiment and then if the idea turns out to be a good one, it starts to be copied and, and ripples out through the system. And that's one of the great advantages of a regime based on private ownership of property. It allows many minorities to experiment in ways that the majority might not anticipate having benefits. Um, it's a fundamental point, I think, that, that people often don't, don't recognize. Yeah, I suppose it is, uh, to be entirely fair here to socialists, um, the, the five-year plans that, 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 that you mentioned, uh, they were introduced at a time when, when nobody was particularly uh, environmentally aware. The West wasn't either, and they were starting from a low level and, and had this idea that we have to industrialize quickly. Um, so, yeah, for that reason, it wasn't a priority. But you could, in principle, imagine a socialist uh, society that is fairly industrialized. Let's let's say one of them had survived in, in the old Eastern Bloc or whatever. And uh, let's say uh, their elites are now Western educated and have the same values that they picked up at Western universities. And they're all super green and they want to introduce that uh, there. They would then, of course, run into the exact same problems that uh, that 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 Western politicians also run into that. Um, and that that would also be true in in uh, if it was a perfectly democratically organized socialism, that you have this problem that uh, in surveys, there's always this big gap that if you ask in abstract terms, do you think we should do more for environmental conservation? Do you do you, or, or even if you ask, do you think we should reduce consumption? If you just ask consumption in the abstract, then you always get large majorities saying, yes, that's exactly what we should do. But as soon as you spell out the cost in a bit more detail, that support, uh, drastically fades suddenly, then a uh, few people are prepared to uh, pay any of the costs themselves. And um, going back to the, uh, the knowledge and information problem, um, that's the reason why the boring solutions to externalities like a, a tax, a Pigovian tax on an externality, like a cap and trade system, these boring Econ 101 textbook examples are still the best ones. They're not hugely exciting that you, you'll never get much applause for that at a, a, a gathering of green activists, but they harness some of that that mechanism that, that, that Mark was talking about, that uh, in, in such a system, if you come up with an innovative way of uh, slashing pollution in, in your industry, in your company, uh, 
then you are the beneficiary. Then you have, then you either save some some other tax money that you no longer have to pay in the form of Pigouvian taxes, or you can keep some of the permits and then you can sell them on. And so you you replicate, even if it's in a somewhat clumsy roundabout way, you you rec replicate uh, some of those market mechanisms where through competition we work out better ways of doing things and where the first movers have. Uh, the advantage or they benefit uh, others can then see that and imitate it and, and you get this uh, this learning process which is completely normal in, in the market economy um, you get a replication of that in terms of environmental outcomes and that's the reason why these uh, relatively simple and unexciting boring proposals are still the best way to deal with externalities. So the, these are ways which are, even though they are an intervention, you you, you do need a government for that. Therefore, if, you, if you're an anarchist, you'll, you'll have a problem with that. Uh, but, if, but if you're just say, a, a standard neoclassical economist, then, uh, then then that is the way to go. That's the market compatible way of, of dealing with such problems. Perhaps the uh, five-year plan wasn't the best example, but a more contemporary example is um, the Orinoco mining arc, which is the flagship mining project of the Maduro regime in Venezuela. So huge amounts of forest has been stripped away um, in pursuit of extracting minerals that can be uh, exported abroad. But I'd like to turn to what Mark was saying earlier about innovation. Um, a number of capitalist, well, people that propose, um, that advocate capitalist solutions can often refer to rapid innovation to demonstrate the power of the market economy. Through competition, firms are incentivized to utilize technology to make the you know, production more streamlined, their products longer lasting, and energy production more efficient. This kind of competitive marketplace is in a part absent, for the most part, in a command economy system. What kind of reverberations does this have on environmental conservation, Mark? Well, if we go back to the, the start of the, the discussion when you were talking about some of the failures of centrally planned regimes, one effect is if you, if you don't have in if you don't have innovation in the production process, then you will carry on with basically what are outdated technologies or technologies that mean that you have to use too many resources relative to the value of the output that you're producing. You don't have the process that Christian explained, I think, very effectively earlier on, where economic growth does not necessarily mean that you are literally using more and more things. It, it could mean that you produce more things of value by using less stuff. So if you don't have innovation, if you don't have people being rewarded for finding new ways of doing things, often in ways that mean using fewer, fewer inputs, because that's how they can, that's how they make a profit then you're going to have a stagnant system, a system that even if at one point in time is using technologies that are appropriate over time, will sort of ossify and will lose out on all the kind of benefits that you get from what Schumpeter called the creative destruction element of capitalism. Um, so, you know, the, the term destruction there is often um, something that is not welcomed by people because it's disruptive. You know, it means old industries, dirty industries, for example, in this case, could be wiped out um, by cleaner, more innovative um, technologies. Um, so innovation is absolutely fundamental. And I think the lesson of history is you need a good deal of decentralization. 
um, in order to have that innovation. And that decentralization means you, you need a good deal of, of private ownership of property, but you also need a good deal of, of decentralization in governance. So many governing institutions that actually provide the framework within which capitalism works, that provide the regulations or the rules within which it works, they too need to be decentralized. So you can have innovations taking place within the framework of rules as new problems come up um, and as they evolve over time. And Christian. When, when it comes to the environment, I'm not an absolute free market purist. Uh, I accept that externalities are a thing, that collective action problems are a thing. So I'm okay with some level of, uh, of, of government involvement here. But I'd say even if you didn't have that, uh, much, much of it really does happen through the market process itself. So uh, even an advanced capitalist economy, even if it didn't have any environmental policies, will probably still be better in terms of its environmental record than, than the Soviet Union was. Uh, it would not be the greenest economy, but there is just this, uh, this natural tendency to, um, to use resources more efficiently and to minimize your costs. And, and that is true, even if you're not specifically bearing the environmental costs in mind, using resources always comes up with some costs and you'll want to minimize them anyway. So that's why the best environmental policies would just strengthen incentives that already exists and, uh, and, and, and go with the grain and just amplify tendencies and trends that, that we already have. There is uh, this concept uh, of, of what's called the weightless economy where somebody has uh, estimated uh, the total weight of our total economic output. If you just put everything that we produce on, on a, a massive scale, uh, a massive balance, how uh, what the total weight of that would be, you can't remember the number, it's, it's a very big number, but uh, those people show that, that the weight of our total economic output falls over time in advanced economies. And that really does show that uh, economic growth nowadays mostly means that we, we learn how to get better at uh, doing more with less. And that's not even that counterintuitive if uh, if you look around yourself. I mean, if you compare a 1990s computer to the computer on which I'm recording this, it uses far less material of all, of all sorts. It's the, this one here weighs maybe a kilo or so. I can, I can carry it around easily, whereas a 1990s computer would, would have been bulky, uh, would have used lots of materials, and, and you can see this all around. Or so if you try to uh, replicate the functions of a, of a smartphone with uh, the devices that were around 20 or 30 years ago, this, this would have meant you would have had to carry around um, a Walkman and a mobile phone and all sorts of things. So we are really making a lot more with uh, fewer and fewer inputs. This is something that happens naturally uh, in a market economy because there are these these uh, incentives to uh, reduce costs and through the and this happens through the competitive process. Usually there's, there's one um, one first mover who gets there first and then others imitate it and we learn from them. And ideally, the way environmental policy should work is that we just uh, amplify what's already happening and try to get even more of that. So, for example, in the um, US's Green New Deal, innovation would be driven forward by government. Uh, but these kind of big government solutions are often mired with unintended consequences. And certainly environmental policies are no exception to that. 
why is it that command-centric policies such as the one I've just outlined are so often so imbued with unintended consequences? Uh, Mark, would you like to start? Well, I think I think the first point I would make, which is the, the fundamental criticism of those kind of policies, is that they assume that the regulators know what kind of innovations or which areas the innovation should be taking place in. And if you take the view that really was put forward by the Austrian School of Economics, which is the foundation of the sort of critique of central planning, um, that assumption simply doesn't hold. The argument that people from that school would make would be that we don't know which sectors the innovation should be in or, or which innovations to favour without there being a competitive process. So you can think of competition being really quite analogous to, although it's, it's not the same as, but it's, it's quite analogous to the kind of competition that goes on in ecosystems where species are trying to find niches in the environment. Firms are trying to find niches in the economic environment. But we don't know centrally um, what kind of adaptation should actually take place. It's only through the competitive process where you have different ideas about what the innovations might be or where they should be uh, applied that we discover over time through trial and error what works best and what doesn't work best. If you just have a single decision-making entity, it can have some kind of trial and error learning, but it won't be as rich a process as when you have lots of different centers of decision-making trying out different things and, and learning through that kind of mechanism. So I think that the Green New Deal is based on really a fundamentally sort of false premise that, um, that the planners know where the innovation should be taking place, which sectors they should be taking place in. I think if you are going to have policies um, to address something like climate change, um, then the kind of mechanism you should probably go for, and Christian has already referred to it as some kind of tax, where you send out a signal to people that they need to be innovating, uh, they need to be reducing their costs, in this case, in terms of reducing carbon emissions, but you then leave it to them to figure out what the innovation should be. You don't have government programs saying we're going to have so much innovation here or so much over there, because that assumes that the planners know what, what those innovations should be, and history teaches us that they don't. And what are your thoughts, Christian? Yeah, I would say on the Green uh, New Deal, that's that's an area where environmentalism morphs into industrial policy, where, where they become one and the same thing, where uh, even somebody who doesn't care that much about uh, environmentalism might be attracted to it because they like industrial policy. And, and uh, you, you could have the, the Matsukato types uh, seeing this as the opportunity for uh, reviving uh, what she would call the, the entrepreneurial state, uh, a state that is proactive in, in promoting particular industries. But of course, it runs into the same problems that traditional non-green industrial policy was also running into, which is that uh, you eliminate the the competitive discovery process. And what happens then is that governments get fixated on a particular technology. Um, let's say they, uh, they they may have invested a lot of political capital into something and don't want to let go 
governments aren't particularly good at this logic of saying, uh, right, we shouldn't have done this and uh, we we will now cut our losses. It's better to lose um, 10 billion or whatever we've committed. Uh, that's better than, than throwing good money after bad. Um, we, we, we can see this in um, with the high-speed rail too, where the cost estimates are going up and up, but politicians nonetheless just don't want to let go. There is uh, the, the, the sunk cost fallacy in action. There's a problem that you get in the private sector as well, but it's uh, it's more severe in, uh, in 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 politics when someone's political reputation is at stake and when they're not committing their own money, and. Uh, I could easily imagine the exact same thing happening with Green New Deal type policies that maybe in a couple of years, it turns out that the technologies that were prioritized for this, um, it turns out that they were totally overrated and that we should have done it in a very different way. And uh, But by then it will be too late and then the resources will, will have been committed already. Uh, we, we can see this already. I, I remember about 20 years ago, there was a lot of uh, of, uh, of upheaval uh, about uh, because George W. Bush didn't want to sign the Kyoto Protocol, and he he was he was hated at the time. Everyone hated him for that. Uh, he was the international pariah. But then, actually, in the U.S., uh, carbon emissions fell faster than elsewhere simply uh, because they used fracking uh, as a, a low carbon. Uh, energy source. It was not the intention specifically to cut carbon emissions. It, it was a side effect, but it was just a technology that nobody anticipated at the time. Nobody who uh, was keen on the Kyoto Protocol ever mentioned fracking. It, it was it was something that came much later, and that turned out to be much more effective than the the, the conventional in my, uh, environmental policies of the time. And uh, that's why you need a technology neutral approach. And that's why these uh, boring textbook solutions uh, are superior to environmental policy style approaches. Because if you simply make people pay for polluting, if you just uh, say you have to pay a tax or you have to buy a permit, then it doesn't matter how you uh, reduce your emissions. It doesn't matter how you reduce pollution. That's up to you. You can still experiment. And if uh, rather than doing that through uh, renewable energy, uh, you do it through fracking, then then in a, in a system, in a market-like system, in a quasi-market system, that's absolutely fine. You have the reductions. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you do it through solar energy or through fracking. What matters is how big is the reduction, and then you make the savings. Whereas if you have a politicized system, you can have the political process being hung up on environment on uh, renewable energy. You can have that being the political priority, and politicians would say, "No, it has to be that." And even if some other way is more cost-effective, doesn't matter. We've chosen this path, and we'll stick to it. And uh, problem is, even if it does uh, eventually turn out okay, it could be that. Um, and some say that uh, some forms of renewable energy are already market compatible. They are no longer more expensive than conventional uh, energy sources. Or even if it's not true right now, it could become in the very near future. Could well be. But it could then also be that uh, it would then also be the case that the countries that uh, invested in that very early on have old forms of renewable energy installed. And uh, it didn't help them. They were first movers. It would have been wiser to, 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 to wait for... Um, 
commercial forms to bring down costs and uh, install the newer forms, the more productive forms. So quite clearly, command economy centric policies and environmentalism aren't the two sides of the same coin as certain groups may wish us all to believe. But unfortunately, they do remain a very popular idea and capitalism continues to be portrayed as the main culprit behind climate change. Why is this rhetoric still so popular? Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think it's important to recognize there is a certain sense in which um, certain forms of central planning or socialist policies, for want of a better phrase, could achieve certain things. So if you take the view, for example, that you want to conserve um, part of the countryside, you could just put a ban and say there will be no development in X percentage of the land area of the UK or, or some other country, whatever it may be. So by drawing lines on maps that are backed by legislation, you could stop development from happening. And in that sense, people who are drawn to those kind of ideas that we have a certain value, we need to pass a law to achieve it. There is a certain credibility to that. Of course, the problem with it is it, is it ignores all of the, the unintended consequences. And it ignores the fact that there aren't absolute values in this way. You know, we might also need there to be houses to be built. So the issue is, how do we make the trade off between the houses and the conservation? And it's those kind of issues that I think many people don't fully grasp. And I mean, it's something that I know economists um, often despair about. Uh, because we see this in many different areas that people often don't understand that trade-offs are essential to pretty well all kinds of decisions and there's a tendency to think that because a certain thing is desirable you might not want to recognize that if you have more of that you may have to have less of something else um, and i'm not really sure how you you get over that so i'm not sure that's a, a, a fully satisfactory answer to your question but I think that is one of the reasons why people are attracted to socialist solutions. It's not the sense that they're attracted to them as such, it's more that they, they don't understand the significance of trade-offs. And if you don't understand the importance of trade-offs, then you're going to be more attracted to the kind of policies that many um, socialist environmentalists tend to, to favor. So I think that's, that's probably, the way I would see things. If I was to add another point, it would be, um, it is important to recognize that in the existing market economies that we have, there are many environmental abuses that are carried out by corporations and by other actors, not only by corporations, just by, by individuals. So, you know, if you do look at um, some of the examples from Amazonia, for example, or from Southeast Asia, there are cases where companies in cahoots with the governments in those uh, countries have basically stolen property from local indigenous peoples in order to gain access to resources. Now, that kind of behavior within a properly functioning market system is, is illegitimate because it's basically theft of other people's property. So it's important for people who are pro-market to emphasize that doesn't mean supporting everything that business does. And I think 
the failure of people who are pro-market to make that point often leads people to look for socialist solutions rather than looking to what a capitalist solution would be, which would be to say in those cases, we need to enforce property rights. We need to make sure that the, the property rights of people in Amazonia are protected from the corporations. Yeah, so I, I think it's a combination of, of, of those things that, that, that are needed. Um, so I hope that goes some way to answering the question. Would you agree with that, Christine? Yes, I would. And, and I would add um, that environmentalism has long had uh, a very ascetic streak. Uh, it was uh, for a long time almost indistinguishable from anti-consumerism. Uh, environmentalists used to be quite clear about the fact that if their ideas were implemented, we would be poorer. That would lead to lower living standards. Now that appeals to some people if you have a puritanical streak. Uh, that's why George Monbiot loves it and, and people who read his columns love it. Uh, it's just that uh, it's, uh, it only goes so far. It's uh, then hard to build a mass movement for that if you are deliberately telling people we want to make you poorer. One advantage of uh, conflating environmentalism with socialism as, is that you can make it appear as if there were no traders, if, as if, or, or at least not for most people, as if for most people this is something that comes for free. The, the socialist environmentalist rhetoric is that pollution is something, environmental uh, destruction is something that companies do. It's got nothing with, to do with you, the consumer, it's those corporations. There is this famous uh, meme that's going around that uh, just 100 companies in the world are responsible for X percent of all carbon emissions, I think something like 70 percent, so a, a, a huge number. And um, the problem with all that is you are suggesting that uh, it's just a small number of people who cause all this problem. And if we just stop them, there would be no cost to you, ordinary consumer. And therefore, mixing it with socialism and class struggle rhetoric is a way to insinuate that you can have very high environmental standards for free. And you wouldn't notice the difference in your living standards. And, and in that sense, it's not a new uh, strategy. It's often the case that um, pressure groups that try to restrict a particular economic activity, do that by shifting their rhetorical focus onto producers and away from the consumers. So a good example of that would be uh, nanny state campaigners. They, they would not say, we want to tell you what you're allowed to eat and drink, because that, that would sound a bit bossy and unpleasant. Instead, they say, we want to stop corporations from, sell, from selling unhealthy products. And uh, then if you frame it in that way, it suddenly becomes popular because the public doesn't like companies. Uh, they're, they're very suspicious of them. And uh, it sounds very different, even though you're describing the same thing. Of course, you can't. It's logically impossible to make uh, the production and the sale of something harder without also making consumption of, of that harder. If you if you put restrictions on the, the producer, the seller of something, you are also restricting the, the consumer. It's, it's the same thing. It's just a rhetorical emphasis, but it does make a difference. And you can see this in surveys, depending on how you ask. If you ask people, do you think the state should tell you uh, how to, to live your life? Everyone says no. If you ask, do you think the state should clamp down on corporations that uh, push junk food on, 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 the, on the public? Then everyone says, yes, that's brilliant. 
brilliant, even though it's, it's exactly the same thing. And the same is, is true for, for NIMBY groups. That will be another example of that. They never say, we have nice houses and we don't care where you live. You can go sleep under a bridge. That's not how they frame their rhetoric. They say, we want to stop uh, corporate developers um, riding roughshod over our community's preferences. Again, it's the same thing. You, you can't stop people from building houses without also stopping someone from living in, in that house if it had been built. It's exactly the same thing. It's just a, a rhetorical distinction, but a distinction without a difference. And socialist environmentalism is basically just like that. You put all the rhetorical emphasis on the producer side, even though, and, and in that way, you're implying that there are no trade-offs, but there clearly are. It may be that if you track, if you trace back all the carbon emissions uh, in the world to um, the people who, uh, the, the companies that uh, that first get the crude oil out of the ground, that then, yeah, that's probably a small number of companies. But nonetheless, uh, these companies are not just burning oil for fun. Uh, it, they, they sell it to loads of other companies and then it becomes part of the production process of the process of producing goods and services that are valuable and that other people uh, want to consume and are prepared to, uh, to to pay for. And if you if you restricted those activities, then of course, those people would make would notice a massive difference in their living standards. So it's easy to say, ah, it's, but it's just it's just 100 companies. Yeah, okay. But if you shut down those 100 companies, uh, we would notice a massive difference, our living standards would would drop massively because uh, it, it would mean disrupting the consumption of lots of things that we value. So so obviously there is a trade-off and uh, it's just dishonest to imply that there isn't. It's fair for someone to, to say um, we're making the wrong kind of trade-off. We should be our trade-off should be more on the side of environmental preservation and less focused on consumption. That's, uh, in that sense, the old school environmentalists were at least more honest, the, the ascetic environmentalists, because they, they did say, yes, you will be poorer if we implement this. Whereas the modern socialist uh, eco uh, environmentalist doesn't even do that. And then there's also the more mundane reason uh, for, for the overlap that uh, it's it just appeals to the same personality type, the same type of person who would uh, attend an anti-austerity protest or, or protest for some socialist cause. These are the sort of people who are also attracted to an, to, uh, an environmentalist uh, protest movement. So there is just an overlap of uh, in terms of the, the, the people that these ideas appeal to. They hold both ideas at once and they try to connect them in some way. They try to convince themselves and others that it's really all part of, co of a coherent whole when it really isn't and, and it shouldn't be. There's also an interesting scope that uh, some on the left advocate that individuals simply can't solve climate change and that their only responsibility is to stay informed and demand that politicians make changes to the planet. Um, but obviously that isn't the case. I mean, if one looks at uh, what happened in Hyde Park over the last few days, that is, you know, the result of multiple individuals all refusing to move their rubbish. So it's a rather interesting scope. But I'd like to thank you both for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Christian, would you like to start with your concluding remarks and where we can find out more about your work? Oh, um, well, I haven't, haven't prepared anything. Um, but yeah, I would, I, I would just say uh, 
environmentalism uh, isn't somehow a breed apart from conventional economics, the same criticism that we have of uh, of, of central planning uh, still applies if uh, if this is applied to for environmental with environmental objectives and um, capitalist economies can uh, go a long way towards uh, solving environmental problems. They can't take us all the way there. Uh, we we do need some forms of government action and um, a, a liberal shouldn't be afraid of acknowledging that and in domain as far as i can see aren't uh, most uh, free marketeers uh, liberals are comfortable accepting that uh, there are externalities and they can't be solved solely through the market but the point is always if there is a problem of that kind what we need is keyhole surgery we need to recognize that the market is fundamentally okay if there's a small problem within it such as the fact that somebody can um, dump external costs on, on other people, then we need a fine-grained, uh, a well-targeted policy intervention which tries to address that problem but otherwise leaves the market process intact. So the conclusion shouldn't be, let's overthrow everything and uh, put a completely new system in place. No, you, you just identify where exactly the problem arises. Um, in the case of climate change, it would just be the fact that carbon emissions are unpriced. And then you do something just to address that. You go for keyhole surgery, you go for a, a very well-targeted, narrow approach, and you do just that and nothing else. And have just one instrument. And that's one of the problems with uh, the environmental policy that we that we have already, that uh, it's usually um, there's, there's hundreds of initiatives all to address more or less the same thing. Uh, and initiatives that get in in each other's way and instead we should just have a single uh, instrument just tax the externality and otherwise lean back and do nothing and that that's hard for politicians and there's much it's, it's maybe more tempting to say uh, but we've come up with a, a detailed plan uh, which for example exists at the EU level that um, the, the EU imposes uh, specific targets on the car industry and where, where they even break it down by by a car model where or, or uh, where they they would say um, for for this uh, type of company this is our our target you have to reduce uh, this type of emission by x percent the, the, another type of emission by by y percent and and come up with far too detailed and, and prescriptive ways and in that way uh, override market mechanisms rather than just working with them by by bringing in prices and uh, and and that should just be the way we, we deal with it in a, in a narrow and focused way and mark um well i wasn't thinking about making concluding remarks either but given that we, <laughs> Sorry. no it's okay given, given we, that we've got the chance um and because christian had to go first there i've had a little bit of time to think about it i think i'd like to make a slightly more philosophical point and and, and it actually goes to the point uh, you mentioned luke about the behavior of people in Hyde Park. And it's not just in Hyde Park, actually. Um, I, I'm a bit obsessed with this, I have to confess. If you look over much of Britain, um, the country is pretty filthy. There are an awful lot of people who drop rubbish everywhere. And the philosophical point I'd like to make there, and this is how it relates to environmentalism, is that individualism, 
um, is often misunderstood. Um, certainly from my point of view, individualism is not so much the cause of environmental problems, it's a failure to properly reflect individualist values that leads to environmental problems. And one of the ways that that, that occurs is when people don't show respect for others. So individualism is about you have your own private sphere that is respected, it, you have property rights, you have rights of bodily integrity, you have rights of private property, but your freedom is within that space. You do not have the freedom to interfere with other people's space. And many forms of environmental damage arise when people do not respect other people's private spaces, other people's property, and sometimes the public spaces that we have to share. And if people would just adhere to the basic individualist tenet, which is you can do what you want so long as you don't harm others, then the environment would, would be much better. And in fact, many things in life um, would be much better. So that's really the point that I'd like to conclude on. And if people want to read some of my work, I have written quite a lot of papers on um, environmental political economy type topics, then go to my website in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London, and you can find my various publications listed there. So thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Christian. Um, if you would like to learn more about the British Conservation Alliance's work, uh, do follow us online at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at bca underscore eco. Uh, thank you again, Christian and Mark. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.